0: Let me invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Luke chapter 15. We're continuing this morning in our series uh, called Resolved, and we're looking at Jesus' resolve as is recorded in Luke 9, 51. He, he turned his face, he set his face for Jerusalem, and he determined that that's where he was going to go in order to pay the price for your sins and for mine. And so the series is kind of following the journey to Jerusalem because not only was Jesus resolved to go to the cross, but he was resolved to teach us. He's resolved to point out some things we needed to see. He wanted to, to do some activities that would be helpful in our understanding of what it means to be in a relationship with him. And so we're kind of following Jesus along on his way to Jerusalem. This more, Actually, sorry, before I go any further, in, on, under one of the chairs in this room somewhere, there's a $10 Starbucks card. So you might want to reach under your chair and see if you find it because it's, it's under... Oh, wow, there it is right there. Unbelievable. The rest of you, everybody's like, oh, man, I can't believe it. That was, I actually had to, I knew where it was, but I actually had to coach the person in the last service because they were like going like this and they weren't getting close to it and I knew it was there. So anyway, uh, how coincidental that that was under your chair. Uh, We might come back to that later on in the sermon. Um, So so what we want to do this morning is take a journey and, and I'm, uh, we made it through the first service. I was a little fearful that maybe uh, I bit off more than I can chew, but th- this is a, a long chapter and we're going to look at the entire chapter uh, a- as we go along and see what Jesus has for us this morning. So before we do that, uh, and, and we're not going to read the whole thing at one time, we're going to just take bites. Let me pray for us before we jump into this, uh, this teaching time this morning. Father, thank you for bringing us here safely this morning. We usually take that for granted, but on an icy morning, uh, we just thank you for your provision. Father, we pray that we would never take for granted your grace, your mercy, your compassion, your love for sinners like us. Father, we thank you that as we see Jesus moving steadily towards Jerusalem, we also see him consistently telling us about the love of God and our need for a Savior, our need for forgiveness and for mercy. This morning is no different, and so we pray that you would teach us Thank you that we could worship you with our voices and with our emotions and our hearts as we've sung uh, of your praise and your glory. And now, Father, enlighten our minds, open our hearts to what you want us to understand about who you are and the relationship that you offer to us through the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that you'd forgive my sin. Please don't let me stand in the way or be a hindrance of anything that you want to teach us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So typically I read the verses and then I give you the sermon in a sentence, but because we're a little different this morning, let me just tell you right off the bat where we're going. Jesus is resolved to show us the character of his father and then our very real need for his grace. So the focal point of the sermon this morning uh, as we get to uh, unwrap it is going to be the character of God the father. And then as we understand that character, then we're going to look at our need Uh, for his care. We're going to be very thankful hopefully by the end of the sermon that God is who he is. Uh, There are going to be seven stops along the journey of chapter 15. So if you're one of those folks that likes to know kind of how's the pastor doing as far as the time and where are we and are we going to get the lunch on time, you're going to miss the first period of the blues game by being here. So just put that out of your mind and don't worry about hopefully you recorded it like I'm recording it. Uh, But we're going to have seven stops along this journey. And the first stop we're going to call Self-righteous grumbling. Look at verses one and two. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. That drawing near to hear Jesus, right, and his teaching. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, "This man receives sinners and eats with them." Now, before we're, we're too harsh on the Pharisees and the scribes, let's be honest about this. The tax collectors were a rotten group of people. If you lived in Jesus's day, you probably wouldn't like the tax collectors either. Now, as it gets closer to April 15th, I know we, you know, most of us don't like the tax collector, but this is a radically different scenario. Jesus' homeland had been invaded and conquered by the Romans, and the Romans were the ones that were levying the taxes. But the Romans figured out pretty quickly if they could get nationals to collect the taxes, or if they could get people from the nation of Israel to collect the taxes for them, and they were just the muscle behind the tax collectors, that things would go better. So if you're a Jewish tax collector, and you're going to collect a bill, and a man, I'm going to say your bill is $100, and I'm the tax collector, and I come and I tell you, you owe 150 and i give the hundred to the romans and i put your 50 bucks in my pocket right so i'm i'm a liar i'm a cheat and i'm a thief so it's not like tax collectors were just wonderful folks that everybody liked and this notion of the sinners kind of is is a broader net thrown to cover a whole host of folks but people that pretty much are not known for loving God or caring anything at all about God or his law, and they they tend to live lives that are pretty raucous, pretty rebellious, and they kind of, you know, the good folk think they kind of deserve the title. So before we're too hard on the scribes and Pharisees, these folks really weren't that good. In fact, there was a rabbinical saying in Jesus' day that went like this, one must not associate with an ungodly man. Now, that's not in the Bible anywhere. Don't try to look it up. You can't find it. That was part of the Jewish tradition. But the notion was, if someone is, a, is, a, is an out-and-out sinner, they're a tax collector, you stay away from them. You don't go anywhere near them. Now, obviously, in this verse, Jesus associated with sinners jesus associated with tax collectors he welcomed them into his teaching time right so they were all drawing near to hear him they're like this guy seems different what does he have to say and jesus wasn't saying hey don't get too close i don't want anybody to take a picture of me and put it out there on snapchat or you're standing next to me if you're a tax collector jesus said come on in you need to hear this well you welcome sit down and and pay close attention when they invited him into their homes to eat he didn't go i could never go there he said what's for supper right? He gladly engaged with this group of people. And so the scribes and the Pharisees start going, what's Jesus doing? But they didn't do it away from Jesus because clearly Jesus overhears them because the rest of chapter 15 is his response. So it's like I used to do when I coached hockey, I would, if the referee was kind of right there and the other coach was right here and I didn't like what the ref was doing, I would look at the coach and I'd say, this guy's calling a terrible game. Where did he go to refereeing school? And the ref would say, coach, watch it. I hear what you're saying, and I would say, innocently, I I, I wasn't talking to you. I was talking to him. You better believe I was talking to him, right? Jesus is no dummy, right? He gets it. He knows they're talking to him. And so he offers a response. So our first stop is the self-righteous grumbling. Our second stop is Jesus' first response. And in, in a way, Jesus is going to let the Pharisees and the scribes play God. What he's going to say to them in telling these next two stories is, what would you do if you were God? Or if you were God, who or what would be most valuable to you? So listen to verses 3 through 10. So he, Jesus, told them this parable. What man of you, right, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, Jesus isn't suggesting that we don't need repentance and that we could actually be righteous. He's challenging the fact that they think they're righteous and are in no need of repentance. Or, what woman, having ten silver coins... If she has lost one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus is saying this. He's saying lost sheep are valuable to their owner. And we might be sitting there going, well, if you have 100, what's the big deal about losing one? Well, if you lose one, what happens if you lose another? And then you don't care about that one, and then you lose another. Eventually, even if you have 100 sheep, you're going to run out of sheep. And if you're a shepherd, your whole livelihood depends on you being able to take care of the sheep. Your whole family is trusting you to be good at being a shepherd and not lose one sheep. This one sheep is of great value. This woman's coin that is lost. The the picture here is that this is a person not of a lot of means. She lives pretty simply. She lives in a small house, and she has 10 coins, and each coin represents a day's wage, right? So she has... Ten days' worth of savings in the bank. What do people tell you now? Your financial planner say you're supposed to have like three months of income and savings in the bank in case disaster strikes. Right? She could last for a couple of weeks. Maybe stretch it out to three. She's not a rich woman, and so losing one of these coins is tantamount to a financial crisis. And she lives in a small house that doesn't have big picture windows like ours. She has to light a lamp. She has to burn a little money. She has to get some oil, light a lamp, and she sweeps and she looks everywhere. She looks diligently and she finds it. Why? Because it's valuable to her. There's some serious seeking going on here. It's fine that we have the 99, but we need to find the one. The nine coins are safe, but we must find the lost one, right? I noticed when I mentioned that under your chair, there might be a $10 gift card. I didn't see anybody that just kind of kept sitting there like this. Pretty much everybody went like that right away, right? Why? Because the $10 gift card from Starbucks is, is valuable to a lot of people. of Starbucks. Do you like Starbucks? Do you or not? Because here's the deal: if you don't like Starbucks, I got a plan for you. You could probably sell it to somebody in here for nine dollars because they'd like to get a, a do, put a dollar in the offering church, and you got eight bucks in your pocket you didn't have when you walked in this morning. Any way you slice it, it's valuable to you. Okay. Any way you slice it, it's valuable. We we assess value to things, and what Jesus is beginning to to unpack for these guys is that that even the smallest, even the littlest thing. Even, the, even, even those that maybe we don't think are valuable are actually valuable to God. And so what happens when both are successful? They celebrate. They call their friends. They call, call folks to witness the joy. And there's some serious celebrating going on. It's about a month ago, Cindy lost a, a set of keys that uh, were work keys. And we lost them for about three days. And, and we searched diligently. And we lit a lot of lamps. And we, we got a lot of sweeping, and we looked everywhere in our house for three days except the spot where the keys were, because obviously it took us a while to find them. But eventually, she found them. And, and she came kind of running up the stairs, and Cindy and I, are, neither of us really run up the stairs anymore, but she kind of came running up the stairs, and, and I can hear it. I found them, I found them, I found them. And we kind of did a happy key dance in the bedroom, right? It was just kind of, you know, thank goodness we found them, right? You celebrate when something of value is returned. And what Jesus is saying is is we're going to celebrate. Now, I mentioned one rabbinical saying. There was another rabbinical saying in Jesus' day about what brings joy to God. Listen to this rabbinical saying. There is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. All right? So what the rabbis thought about you, if you weren't meeting up to their standards, was God despises you so much that when you die, he is most happy. Right? How that should be the theme of Green Tree Community Church, right? What a welcoming church this is. You can see why people who were who were sinners and tax collectors had had and I'm not placing them as victims, but they had no opportunity to repent because no one wanted to welcome them back. And the second stop along the way, Jesus says, Well, I'm gonna let you. Play God for just a second because Jesus turns this on his head. Rotten folks are valuable to God, and, and, and in heaven, there's a repentance dance that goes on. There's more joy before God, there's more joy before the angels of God when someone comes to their senses and sees their need for a Savior and a Redeemer. What would you do if you were God? But Jesus doesn't leave it there, He ratchets it up. And our third stop along the way is Jesus is going to fundamentally ask the question well, how bad a person could God possibly love? Look at verses 11 through 16. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to the father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. He divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property on reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Just how bad a person would God love? Well, we have two sons, and we're introduced uh, more extensively to to the younger one first let's look at this younger one because he kind of really honestly, if we look at this honestly, he does fall under the category of not a not a very good person. He's kind of a, a a rotten kid. And we see that in a few different ways. The first is this. He has absolute disdain for his father, right? Give me my share. In Jesus's day, you you didn't ask the father for your share while he was still living. It was the highest insult possible. Now, I know in our generation, that's different. You know, families pass on some wealth earlier on while parents are still living. They set up trust funds and that sort of thing. But we have to put ourselves in Jesus' culture to understand the strength of this. This was the son saying, you know what, my life would be a whole lot better off, dad, if you were dead. It's complete disdain for his father. Secondly, he's 100% selfish, right? Not Not only says, give me my share, but he says, it says that he gathered all he had. And probably, what it means is he liquidated all the assets that that belonged to the father, and they were considerable. This father is a wealthy, wealthy man. So he liquidates everything, gets gets whether he puts it in you know uh, uh, America Express credit card or whatever, and he's gone. He doesn't go to Miami for the weekend right? He doesn't go out to Vegas for a week. He leaves the country. He leaves behind his family. What he's saying is, I finally have what's important to me. I don't need any of this. And he is gone. He's 100% selfish. Not only that, but he is a complete fool, right? What does he do with his money? Does he put some in the bank? Does he invest it? Does he say, I want to make sure, you know, I'm X age, and if I want to live, you know, I think to X age, I better make sure that I have a good investment plan. No, he goes and he blows it all, and it, and it not on like a, a, a good investment that just went south, right? That happens to people sometimes. You think this is a good investment, and, and it doesn't work out, and then you read in the newspaper. Boy, a lot of smart people actually called that one wrong and lost. No, it's not like that not like it was a near miss. He squandered it on reckless living. Everything he shouldn't have spent it on, he spent it on. Never saved a nickel and he lost it all. He is a complete fool. Now he's in a problem. He doesn't have anything and there's a famine in the land. And guess what? Here's the next thing about him. He has no marketable skills. He, he has no job skills that he can go out and get a job because the best he could do was find a guy who said, you can feed my pigs, right? Now, I'm pretty convinced that almost every human being walking around the planet could do that. You don't have to have a lot of skill to be able to feed pigs. So not only has he wasted all of his money, but now he set himself up to be a complete and utter failure. Also beyond this, he has no self-respect because what good Jewish boy is going to be working in the pork industry, right? It's forbidden. That's a no-no. And he literally comes to the point where he says, doesn't matter what my heritage is, doesn't matter what my background is, I'm just trying to keep body and soul together. I think it's safe to say that if a friend of yours came to me and said, came to you and said, let me tell you about this child of mine, or let me tell you about my niece or nephew that acted this way, we would probably come to the conclusion that that wasn't a very good kid. How bad a sinner is it that God would love? Because most of us probably think, well, when the famine came and when he had to be with the pigs, he kind of got what he deserved, didn't he? That is the temptation for me to think that way. And yet, the story doesn't end there. Our fourth stopping point of the seven along the way is that Jesus reveals a glimmer of hope. Look at verse 17 through the first sentence in verse 20. I love this way it starts out. But when he came to himself, right? It's like he woke up and it wasn't good what he saw, but he's beginning now to kind of deal in reality. He said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. As I said a moment ago, I think reality began to set in. And some of the things that he was taught as a child began to come back to him because he certainly had time to sit And think about the mess that he had created for himself, right? And as he thinks, he begins to reason and remember. And I do believe that he's not flippantly saying, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll make up this great speech and dad will have to forgive me. I don't think that's the tone of this at all. I don't think he's figured it out all the way yet, but I think the light is starting to come on. And he realized that he's culpable for his sin. And yet he also is beginning to think about what? He's beginning to think about his father's character. I read a great quote this week. I couldn't find the author, uh, but it goes like this. Sometimes we must be hurt in order to grow. Sometimes we must fail in order to know. Sometimes we must lose in order to gain because some lessons in life are best learned through pain. Now, we're not talking about pain that if I'm being victimized by someone, if I'm being abused by someone, if I'm being taken advantage of. We're not talking about pain that someone else causes. We're talking about the pain that we bring on ourselves by being foolish. By being by being short-sighted, by being naive, right? And we've probably all been there if, if we're more than you know, 10 or 15 years old. Uh, and those of us who are younger than that, we'll get our turn here. It'll come along, right? Uh, but we could probably say amen to that. You know, the hard moments when I've made bad decisions and I've I've kind of had to kind of stand up and realize that Those maybe have been most helpful for me. I believe he's beginning to deal with his own sin and he's beginning to credit his father with. Uh, some real character. So he says, I'm going to go home and see if I can become a servant. And as he does, he, so he says, he gets up and he goes to his father and he runs smack dab into the depth of his father's character and the depth of his father's love. That's our fifth stopping point on our journey this morning. Look at the second uh, part of verse 20 through verse 24. So he rose, came to his father, but while he was still, the son was a long way off, his father saw him and he felt, look at this word carefully, he felt compassion. And he ran and embraced and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, quick, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Look at the reaction of the father. First of all, you get the notion that he's on the lookout for him, right? Because he sees him a long way off. You get the sense that maybe once or twice a day, dad kind of went out to the front porch and took a look to see if if this might be the day when, when younger son came home and he spots him a long way off and then he did what no dignified man of his standing again this is a very wealthy man he's one of the leaders in his community economically morally every way you want to cut it he pulls up his robe and he runs to his son who he could probably smell before he saw because his son has come from nothing and he's come from the pig pen and he is a mess he is a, a complete, my, my my grandma said, he's a hot mess, right? he There's nothing good about this kid, but the father runs, and then he doesn't stop short and go, whoa, let's get a shower. <laughs> let's get you cleaned up a little bit. I, I want to put a robe on you, but I don't want to soil the robe, and, and uh, the ring won't even fit on your finger because of how crusty dirt. Then he grabs him, and he embraces him, and he kisses him, he smothers him with love, I remember when uh, when Katie moved to Hawaii a few years ago, and and we went about. I went about six months without seeing her, and she was scheduled to come home on a Sunday. She was scheduled to land at Lambert on a Sunday. This is back when we were over at North Middle School. Katie, if you're new, is our our middle child, our our my my one little girl, not little anymore, but she's still my little girl. And um, so we were over at North having church, and I was preaching, and Katie walked in the back door with her brother, right. And I just kept on preaching, and then after the service was over, I greeted her. Does anybody remember that day, by, by the way? There are some of you that were here. What did I do? Do you remember? I stopped the sermon dead, and I said, excuse me, just a minute. And I ran to my daughter. I grabbed her. I hugged her. And she just was coming home, but I hadn't seen her for six months. And it was so good to see her. I'm like, you know, I'm sorry if this is not what the pastor is supposed to do, but I'm hugging my little girl, right? this father runs, embraces, kisses. It's not a cool reception. It's not, well, let's see what you've learned and I'll decide whether or not I'm welcoming you back. Secondly, this this father not only runs and embraces and kisses, but he interrupts her. and completely ignores the son's speech, right? The son's saying, Father, I have sinned. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned before you. I'm no longer worthy. And it's like the son's talking over here, and the father goes, hey, servant, come here. Go get a robe. Go get a ring. Go get sandals. Go to the butcher shop. That calf we've been saving for a special occasion, son, just be quiet for a minute. Tell him to get it ready, and then we'll get going. We're going to celebrate. Now, what were you saying, right? And it's not that he doesn't care what his son's saying, but notice that he's so focused on his welcome, that that's what's most important to him, that he makes sure that his son knows that when you come home, your father loves you. He loves you unconditionally. And he was so intent on his welcome that he didn't listen to the son's words. Now, that doesn't mean that we ought not repent. Don't misunderstand that. But we're looking at the character of the father here, right? I think maybe the father understood repentance better than his son even did, And so he says, bring, bring the robe, bring the rings, this notion of you, you have a position in this community. You need a robe that demonstrates that. You have some authority in our family, so you need a ring that demonstrates that. Only slaves run around barefoot. You need to have shoes on your feet to show that you are, you're a free man of standing. And, and the fatted calf is, we're not just having supper, we're going to throw a party. all right? The depth of the father's love is almost immeasurable. And if we're not careful, it can almost make us angry because we think it's not what this kid deserves. And how convenient of us to think that while ignoring our own sin. Fortunately, the story continues. We see the depth of the father's love, but there's another person that, that has to come into the story for the story to be complete because he's the person that is now heir to everything in the father's estate. It's the older brother. And we meet the older brother in our sixth stop in the journey. And that is an unexpected answer. Look at verses 25 and 26. Now, the older brother was in the field, so he's out doing his day's work. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And here's the unexpected answer. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe." And sound. The story now focuses, uh, shifts its focus to the older brother. Why is that? Well, because he's the heir of all things, right? Just as the scribes and the Pharisees were the heir of of the law of God and the relationship with God, just as you and I, if we're believers in Jesus, are heirs of all the covenant promises, and, and his opinion towards the younger brother is vitally important. How will he react? And that's our seventh stop along the journey. We see revelation and we see invitation. Verses 28 through 32 to wrap up the chapter. But he, the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, the father, to the older brother, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Revelation we see is, is insight into the older brother's character. Let's look at that character for just a second because it's pretty different than his father's. The first thing that's revealed about him is that he sees himself as a servant instead of a son. All these years I've served you. Some translations render that all these years I've slaved for you. In other words, the notion that he had been living under all his life was that he had to work in order to be in good standing with his father. He completely misunderstood that being a son meant that the relationship was already there. So he sees himself as a servant. Secondly, he's extraordinarily self-righteous. I've never disobeyed you. This this son of yours, this he's awful. He's terrible. I've never done any of those things. Now you could debate whether he's actually sinned or he has a sinner, or whether he's sinning at this very moment, but he sees himself as the good kid. He sees himself as the loyal one who's done everything he's supposed to do. And therefore he has the right to look down and to judge his younger brother and find him guilty. Not only is he self-righteous, but he even denies kinship, right? This son of yours, he doesn't say my brother, right? It doesn't say junior right now it doesn't say the one that we used to kid around and play in the creek and get in trouble all the time right that no it's your son he denies that they're even related remember the rabbinical saying right one must not associate with an ungodly man and finally he simply just spews hatred right You've never let me have a, have a party. You, you kill the fatted calf for him. You can hear the hatred just dripping off of every word. And what the, rev, the revelation that we see is quite frankly, the older brother is just as or even more lost than the younger brother, even though he never left. He was never there in relationship with his father in the first place. And he too needed grace and mercy and compassion even though he couldn't see it. How does the father react? Does he say, I threw up his hands. I can't believe that you would act this way. No, look at the father's response. It's in the form of an invitation. Look at the very first word he says, son, right? You're my boy, right? Nothing's ever going to change that because I'm not going to let anything ever change that. Again, we come back to the character of the father son, you're, 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 you're a son, not a servant. And by the way, you're, you're an heir. You're not the hired help, right? You're not a hired hand. Everything I have belongs to you, right? That's the invitation of salvation, friends, in case you haven't quite gotten there yet. Everything that God had wrapped up in, in his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, was given to us in order that we could belong to God that we could be sons and daughters and heirs instead of strangers and aliens and enemies of God, right? He also corrects his son in that actually throwing a party for your brother was the morally right thing to do. How many of you moms and dads, or how many of you ever had a mom and dad say, go to that party, that's the morally right thing to do, right? I never heard that growing up. It might have been the parties that I chose to go to, but the father's saying, it it would have been wrong had we not celebrated, right? it would be wrong. Why? Because we've received this one back from the dead. And by the way, whether you want to admit it or not, your family too, right? This brother of yours, he belongs to both of us. We're both responsible for him as he is responsible to us. And so there's an invitation placed by the father because you see God the father seeks. God the father celebrates. But God the Father only offers you and me one relationship. He doesn't offer us 25 or 30. He only offers us one because he offers us the only one that will ever help us. And it's the relationship of father to child through the Lord Jesus. When I come to Christ in faith, I receive God as my true heavenly father. I come into relationship with him as his son, identified through the blood and the sacrifice of Christ as one who belongs to him. And that's what the father offers to both of these boys, a genuine family, relationship, based not on their actions, not good or bad, not on their activity, but on his character and on his love. The younger son behaved terribly, almost too awful to be forgiven, except for the father. The older brother shows himself to be a self-righteous slave that that'll actually he harmed his own soul by looking at himself that way, except for his father. What's our response this morning? Do we believe we're valuable? Some of you may see yourself as the younger son and say, you know what, God could never love me because of all the terrible things that I've ever done. I I said this in the first service, I'm going to say it again. I'm going to say it gently, but but honestly, that statement, God could never love me because I've done too much bad stuff, is blasphemy. As Steve Brown used to say, it's from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke because what you're saying is you're more powerful than God what you're saying is you can do more sin than God can do grace. God forbid that they, if that's true, then we're all wasting our time, right? I should be down at the Blues game watching the hockey game because that's the best that I'm going to get, right? But God's love is so much more infinite. We see ourselves as the prodigal, so to speak. Do we understand that we actually are valuable for God? And if we struggle with self-righteousness, Are we willing to understand that we too need the grace and the mercy of God? You see, that's the question because the story actually ends in a question. It doesn't quite wrap it all up. I wonder if the older brother ever went back inside. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this teaching, not just to the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day, but to us this morning. Lord, it's easy for us to be judgmental of people that we don't think live up to the right standards. Lord, it's easy for us to be tempted and give into the temptation of, well, that person really got what they deserved and kind of quietly be happy at someone else's pain. Lord, it's also easy for some of us to say, I I just, I could never experience God's love because I'm just so awful. Lord, protect us from ourselves. Protect us from our sinful thoughts. Protect us from the evil one who would plant these, these terrible, terrible thoughts in our minds. And again, show us Jesus. Show us your love. Show us your grace. Show us your mercy. Father, for those of us that belong to you in faith, those of us who put our faith in you, help us to keep it there. Help us not to ever be despondent because of our sin uh, and give up or to be smug in self-righteousness, but help us to be humbly, gratefully, thankfully dependent upon you. And Lord, if there's anybody here today that hasn't experienced your love and your grace, Father, draw them to yourself. Let them know that they're of great value to you that they can belong to you through Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.